This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Um, hi, I'm John Charbach. Uh, I think a lot of you probably know me. I'm a member at Providence Church down near campus. Uh, it's a great joy to get a chance to preach here and, and also to give uh, Corey and Mike the week to kind of enjoy the holidays. If I haven't met you, um, you know, and you've seen me a few times already, uh, you come up, come up after the service and just say hi. I'd like to, you know, at least get to know some, some more names. Um, when, so I am, I'm the youngest of four children. I have cousins, but they're adopted. And um, so I have not been around a lot of newborns in my life. And so it was, I was in my late 20s, probably the age of 28, um, I think, when I held my first newborn. I think that's also the last time I've held a newborn. And the, the, the thing about newborns, for those of you who don't know, they're very small and they're very fragile and they're very delicate. And um, I had this weird thought as I was holding this, this baby William. It was that, um, you know, like, it was about the incarnation. It was like, how did God get in there? And I said, I said this out loud, and it was sort of like weird, I think, for the grandfather who was like, all right, hippie. But um, and I think we tend to overlook the miracle of the incarnation. And it's probably, of all the works of God, the works of God in creation, the works of God in redemption, I think the incarnation is probably the greatest work of God. It's the creator himself stepping into the creation, which doesn't really make sense, like just in, even in terms of categories. And I think so it's kind of fitting that we have this text serendipitously on, um, and I don't know if, if y'all are a church that does Advent at all, but you know, the first Sunday of Advent, which is a season that commemorates the lead up to Christmas and the incarnation of our Lord and sort of highlights the nearness or the eminence of God, of God brought near to us or God with us, Emmanuel. Um, and I think the season of Advent sort of points us to that the Son of God becomes man so that we can become sons of God, to, to kind of paraphrase Athanasius. And, and, and so I think this is, a, as a result, this is a really appropriate text because it's a text about the incarnation. And the text uh, we're in today is uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. Um, if, you're, if you're new here, you have one of the Bibles in the back. It's the soft cover on page 493. It's the hard cover on page uh, 844. So Mark chapter 9. Let me just read it for us real quick. It says, After six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before him, before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And they were coming down from the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. Uh, we, we said before that Mark is sort of answering two questions. Uh, the first question is, who is Jesus? And the second question is, what did he come to do? And uh, this section of Mark, Mark kind of 8 and 9, is sort of the hinge between those two questions. Um, it's Mark 9 chapter, uh, Mark 9 in particular, is sort of the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's going down the mountain and he's heading to Jerusalem to be crucified. Um, and, 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 and so this is a section from one section, transitioning from one section to another. Like, who is he to what did he come to do? And this is and as a result, this section kind of acts as a summary for the whole book of Mark. Everything that came before and points to everything that's going to come after. And uh, so I think the message of this text is a simple one. Um, it's not simple. Uh, it's, it's a little long-winded. It's, it's that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who fulfills the law and the prophets. He fulfills the law and the prophets by dying for our sins and being raised for our justification. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who fulfills the law and the prophets by dying for our sins and being raised for our justification. And so obviously that's a very dense statement. It's not like a snappy. Uh, so what we'll do today is just work through that statement clause by clause and see how we're getting it from the text. Um, so so first, first clause, clause number one, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That Jesus is the King. He's the Christ, the anointed one of God. And he is much more than that. He's not just David 2.0, if we said before, but he's God become flesh. He's not just God robed in flesh, sort of the outward appearance of flesh, like a, like a human suit around God, but the Son of God in all his boundless glory actually becomes a human. He becomes flesh. He's God incarnated or God enfleshed. And so just to get us, get us situated here, uh, Peter in chapter 8 has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, and then Jesus has predicted his death, which is a bit of a stumbling block for Peter and the rest of the apostles. And in verse 1 of this chapter, he's promised to return in glory. All right, so let's take a look at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus came up with Peter and James and John and led them up a very high mountain by themselves. So this is six days after the, the predictions he's just made. Which it's not like normally in Mark, the this transition between sections is sort of like, and immediately Jesus did this, or immediately Jesus did that. And it's not immediately, it's like this very specific time increment. Um, and it's rooted in a very specific time, and it's rooted in a very specific place, kind of suggesting that this is not like a metaphorical story that the author of Mark is teaching us. Like this is, this happened right here at this moment in history. Um, and Peter sort of affirms the same thing in Second Peter. Uh, he says, you know, we don't follow cleverly devised myths or stories we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And it's, I think, generally agreed that that's, when he's talking about that, he's talking about the transfiguration. So this is an event that's closely, that's situated in time, and it's closely related to what comes before and what's coming next. And obviously he leads them up a high mountain, um, and, and, you know, this is like a literal mountaintop experience. Like, it's not a spiritual mountaintop experience. It's a literal mountaintop experience. They're on the top of the mountain, just like Moses is on Mount Sinai or Elijah is on Mount Carmel. Um, and they're having an experience of God. And it's a very personal experience of God because they're by themselves. It's Jesus and James and John and Peter. It's not all the disciples. It's not all the throngs that are following him around. This is a very intimate experience. That Jesus is revealing something in particular to the three of his closest disciples. And let's take a look at the second half of verse 2. He was transfigured before him, and his clothes became radiantly white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Uh, so the word transfigured is kind of like a you know, $10 word. It means transformed, basically. Um, it, it, he's, here he's transformed. You know, sometimes it's used to refer to transformed in your outer appearance. Sometimes it's in your inner appearance. Here I think it kind of it means both. Um, he, he, it's that he's radiantly, intensely white. It's kind of the faint echo. If, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, it's kind of the, the faint echoes of Daniel, uh, Daniel seven. You know, in, in verse nine, that the ancient of days, who is the God, the, who's God the Father. Um, his clothing was white as snow. And here we have the son who's radiantly white. So there's, you kind of hear, oh, okay, there's... You know. But then you hear this really strong echo. There's like the faint echo, and then there's a strong echo of Exodus chapter 33. And in Exodus 33 and 34, uh, Moses is sort of like, he's up on Mount Sinai and he's begging God um, to let him see his glory. And God sort of warns Moses, no, this is not how it works. Like, you can't see my glory and live. And... Um, and so God sort of devises the solution. So, you know, you, if you can find it in time, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 33 with me, um, starting in verse 19. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Uh, so it's Genesis, Exodus. Um, starting in verse 19. He says, And I said, I will make all my goodness, this is the Lord speaking, He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you the name, my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, 
and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face and live, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you can stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock, and I will cover you with my hands until I have passed by. Then I will take, back, take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So sort of like Moses, they're up on a mountaintop. Um, but unlike Moses, they don't need, they can see the glory of, of, of God, and they don't need to hide in the cleft of a rock. And this is, I think, sort of the miracle of the, within the miracle of the incarnation. That God, God is so holy that even Moses himself, who the Bible describes as the humblest man on all the earth, um, you know, he gave up the princely comforts of Pharaoh's court to lead and deliver his people. He has these powers to perform mighty signs and call down wrath from heaven. Um, God raises him up as a great lawgiver for his people. Even this Moses is too sinful to see God face to face and live. And yet here we have Peter, James, and John, who are at this point in the story not particularly remarkable disciples. Like they're, they're you know, like Peter's going to deny Jesus in a few chapters. And yet somehow they're able to stand there face to face and behold the glory of the sinless God-man Jesus. And so the miracle within the miracle of the incarnation is that God's glory is mediated through his son. Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming a human and taking the form of a servant. Jesus, who gave up the heavenly comforts of his father's court uh, and, and to deliver his people, who upholds the word the world by the word of his power, who God raised up on a cross, Jesus allows us to experience God face to face. And this is the, the greater part of the miracle of the incarnation. Not just that God became man, but that he did so in a way that doesn't just destroy us. It's the transcendent God, the God who is too holy that not even Moses can look upon him, the transcendent God brought near, made imminent made Emmanuel, God, with us. It's, it's, it's the transfiguration here is sort of like, so I was out running, and today is a similar day. I was out running on Friday. It's very cloudy, um, unusual for Austin. And the sun was out, and I wasn't wearing my sunglasses because I didn't need to. And the sun was out, but it was obscured by the clouds. And like, it's not just like this was a cloudy day. Like, I, you, could, you, you, could, you could see the sun, kind of, but like you could look right at it, you know? Like it was not... You shouldn't do that. I'm not recommending that. But you could, you, you, could t- you could look right at it like it was obscured. And there was like a sort of a nimbus of light. Like you could tell maybe the sun was there and it was glorious after a fashion, uh, a hint of brightness. But it's just so veiled by the cloud that like I could experience it. And this is kind of how it is with the Son of Man, I think, that you know, there's hints of his glory during his ministry. He's performing signs and wonders. He's forgiving sins. He's teaching with authority. Um, he's stilling the storms. But they can still exist with him and look right at him and, and, and people can miss his glory. People can miss him and, 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 and see like, ah, is that really the is that really the sun? I can't I can't tell maybe maybe it's over you know, over there. And the the glory is there but it is veiled by flesh. And the transfiguration is sort of like a cloud break. Um, where you're staring at the sun and like suddenly you're staring at the sun and it's like dazzlingly bright and you're like, ah oh, my retinas um, <laughs> Uh, and uh, you know it, it, it's unobscured. It's direct sunlight. It's it's very disorienting. You can't look at it for any extended period of time. Uh, if you do, you'll go blind. This is the unmediated glory of God shining forth in this moment, and it goes from this dull and manageable image of or sense of God's glory to this blindingly bright, unmediated sense of God's glory. And the trans the transfiguration is God's way of showing us that these hints that He's been dropping throughout the first half of Mark about the divinity of Jesus, uh, they reflect a deeper, brighter, more glorious reality about the incarnation. And so I've I've been reading, and and as we think about like, okay, that's the first part. Like, okay, yeah, we get it. Like, Jesus is the son of God. He's he's God incarnate. Like, these are Christian truths that we've known for thousands of years, and, you know, kind of, sometimes can get kind of dull for us. And I was reading this book this week, or rereading a book called When I Don't Desire God, by, by John Piper. And so a lot of what I'm about to say is a rough paraphrase of chapter 3 and chapter 4 of that book. Um, and so Paul in 2 Corinthians points out that uh, beholding Christ 
in his glory is one of the primary means through which we are transformed, or the word he uses is transfigured, into Christ's image. And so just listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, that is to say transfigured, into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, when we set the, the eyes of our hearts upon Christ, we are transformed by his glory. In the same way that Moses on Mount Sinai is transformed by God's glory. He comes down and his face is shining. He's reflecting back, back the glory of God. And at our conversion, we get a taste of this glory. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, you know, one chapter later. He says, God who said, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of the experience. Like, I think a lot of us have had that experience, that conversion experience. Like, oh, we're, like, we're on a cloud. Um, we feel like we've had this very intimate experience with, with, with God. And, but I think Satan wants to keep us from seeing that. And there's a veil that he wants to put over our eyes so that we can't, uh, you know, we can't really experience God in all his fullness. And the veils consist of things like worldly riches, which kind of choke out, the, choke out our spiritual life, or the cares of life, or the pride of life, or nagging doubts. And I think, you know, if, if I'm being honest, the longer I am a Christian, uh, I've been a Christian for about 10 years, and the longer I've been a Christian, the harder it gets. Not because I'm, not, not in the sense that like I get more prone towards sin, but the duller that feeling of God's glory becomes. That, that, the mountaintop experience in the conversion gets harder to, to, to you know, it, it begins to wear off. We get a duller sense of God's glory. Things start to get, feel mundane. Uh, doubts start to creep in. And frankly, like the riches of the world uh, start to choke out spiritual life. And I think if we just let, if we just keep cruising on that, that initial inertia that we've got in our conversion, you know, like the glory of God will become obscured and our lives will increasingly look more and more like the world. But then occasionally, God in his great mercy and his great grace will give us another mountaintop experience. And not like a supernatural vision of Jesus transfigured, but like an, the ordinary natural experiences of Christ in his glory and in his goodness. And so I think the application for this text is if we think back to that mountaintop experience we have in conversion is to continue kind of striving for that mountaintop experience, to striving to experience the glory of God in the ways that God has set out. The author of Hebrews says um, that we should strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And I don't think he's making a deeper statement there about salvation. I think he's saying that the, one of the means in which we experience the glory of God, the way that we see God face to face and experience his holiness and his glory is by striving for holiness in our own lives uh, to kind of keep, make sure that we're not getting choked out by the uh, pride of life and the riches of the world and the cares of life. Um, and so we should walk in the path that God has given us to experience his glory. And you think about it, there's actually a lot of different ways that God, paths that God gives to have natural, so supernatural in one, in one sense, but ordinary experiences of his glory here in this life, like the Sunday assembly, where he says that, hey, wherever two or three of you are gathered together in my name, I'm there with you. Or in, in the body of Christ as we love and care for one another, when he says like, hey, they're gonna know by your love for one another that you're my disciples, and, and you should go let your, your light shine so that people will look at that light and, 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 and give glory. They see the glory of that light and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Um, or on contemplating the works of God's hand in creation, right? That the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, or evangelizing others and fulfilling the Great Commission, right? I am with you always, even till the end of the age. We want the presence of God. We should be about the work of God. Or in prayer and, and devotional time, as we seek the face of God, your face, Lord, do I seek, or in his word, whether written or preached, that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, like a lamp shining in the darkness, or diligently putting off the desires of the flesh and the works of the flesh, and diligently putting on the desires of the Spirit and walking in step with the Spirit, striving for holiness so that we can see the Lord. Or meditating upon, and this is, the, this is probably the biggest one, meditating upon the grace and the goodness of God in the gospel, that we see the glory of God most fully and most completely when we hear and understand and appreciate 
the gospel, whether it was to it written or spoken or preached. For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, which Paul says there is, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed that glory. And so in doing these things, we sort of we'll, we'll keep the eyes of our hearts soft to experience the glory of God and kind of keep the thorns away so we can have a, we, we can have a life where we have these ordinary sustaining means of God's um, like uh, or these ordinary experiences of God's grace and glory in our lives that will sustain us for our for our walk with Christ. Um, and and so I, you know as you think about this like so the the Bible says that like if we worship idols we become blind like the idols are. And one of the primary means I think is just to uh, of Satan to blind us is just to turn our hearts away from God and to idols. And think about like and idols can mean any, it can be obviously like a statue which is how the prophets are using it, because that's the struggle that the Israelites are going for. But I think it's, it's anything that um, kind of distracts our heart from God. Like the, and, and for us, it's not usually not statues. It's like the trinkets of the world and the riches of life in front of the baubles and like our shiny little screens with our, you know, you can kind of scroll and like, oh, Melissa's doing this. Um, and I think that as we do that, like our eyesight grows dim. Right? We become more and more like our phones. We become more and more like our riches. We become like blind idols that can't really see the glory of God. Um, and so the, the glory of Christ may be shining brightly in our lives for everyone to see, but our pupils are so contracted and so covered by the cataracts of idolatry that we can't even see them. And so we, we need to guard against that. And we need to guard our hearts and guard the eyes of our hearts about what, what are we, to what are we devoting our attention and to what are we letting our eyes, by what are we letting our eyes be blinded in the world? Okay, and so there's a huge, look, there's a huge caveat to this, which is that we should do all the stuff in, in, a, in, a, in a spirit of humility. Like, it's not, I, I hiked up this mountain, I did all this stuff, show me a sign, God, I deserve this. Right, that's the wrong way to do it. We're never entitled to an experience of God's glory, but rather God has shown me the path up the mountain. I will humbly walk this path and trust that, you know, through doing the ordinary means of grace that God will sustain me with images of his or with experiences of his glory. That we should strive for the extraordinary mountaintop experience with the ordinary means and paths of grace that God has set out for us. Okay, so that's, that's the first part of this text, that God offers Peter and James and John this great consolation and encouragement that if this Jesus is the Christ, well then, you know, how will your father ever cast us out? Or if this Christ is for us, who can be against us? Like this is, this, this guy is on your side. This God man is on your side. Uh, you don't need to worry. But then he goes on to offer a correction. Offers a correction. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, yes, but he's the Christ, the Son of God, who fulfills the law and the prophets. So Jesus is this great and final prophet. He's the last messenger that God sends to Israel. But he's much more than that. He's also the son. He's not just relaying the words of the father, like, oh, I heard God told me this and I'm telling you. But he's speaking with the authority of the father. He's speaking the father's truth with the father's own authority. And he is the end of the law. He's the purpose of the law for all who believe. He's the goal of the law. And so we'll see this starting in verse 4, which says, and there appeared to them, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Uh, so Elijah and Moses appear. Elijah is sort of a great Old Testament prophet, and Moses is, of course, the great Old Testament lawgiver. And together they represent the law and the prophets, the full expression of God's Old Testament testimony. Um, and they're talking with Jesus. And we don't know, he doesn't say, Mark doesn't tell us what they're talking about, but Luke does. Luke tells, them that, that tells us in chapter 9, verse 31, that they spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they're gathered together on the mountaintop experience, and they're talking about the Son of Man is going to go down this mountain and be crucified and die at the hands of, single, of, of, of sinful men. And this is what the God, the God the Father has ordained beforehand. So this is the plan. They know what they're talking about. They're discussing. It's not a surprise. And then we get verse 5. And, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for you that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So Peter is kind of overwhelmed by this experience. I've been staring at the sun, it's too bright, and he starts saying nonsense, basically. And the, the first thing that he says that's nonsense is he says, let us make three tents. Now what that sort of implies is that like Jesus and Moses and Elijah are, you know, they're going to be sticking around for a while. This is a permanent arrangement. Oh, Elijah's back, that's great. Um, 
And, but it also implies that uh, this is a, that they're equal in stature. Like, oh, you get a tent, and you get a tent, and you get a tent. And, you know, obviously, obviously they're not. And the way we know that, in, in, one of the ways we know that is that the, is the very next verse says, he didn't know what to say. He's, he's, he's out of his mind. He's like witless. He's just spouting nonsense because he's so dazzled by this experience. And, and then we, we, we know that it, we know this from verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So this is the correction of God. God offers up a correction. The correction is, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That Moses and Elijah are servants. But Jesus is the son. And the, the father has raised him above the other servants. He's not just beloved, but he's also a son. And so you'll see this, for example, in Hebrews chapter 1, which, verse 1, which reads, Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, Moses and Elijah. But in these days, these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or in Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 3, that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For the house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant, but to, to, to testify about the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. The Father here is, is elevating the son over, over the servants. And, 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 then, and then we, we see this again in verse 8 where he says, that suddenly looking around, they were no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. That Jesus alone has remained on the mountaintop. That the servants are gone, but the son remains forever. And so Calvin's reading of this is, is to say that when it is said that in the end they saw Christ alone, this means the law and the prophets have a temporary glory but that the Christ alone must remain fully in view. And so on this, on this reading, Moses and Elijah are sort of like heralds. And heralds, uh, they proclaim the arrival of, of Christ. A herald's like an ambassador. They proclaim the message of a king. Hey, the king is coming. Or, hey, the Lord is coming. Prepare your heart. Or, the Lord is coming. Make straight his paths. Or, the Lord is coming. Lay down your rebellion. Uh, but now that their Lord is here, they don't need to keep speaking on his behalf. He can speak for himself. It's no longer listen to the herald, listen to Moses, listen to Elijah, but now it's listen to the son. And so the application of this, of this section is, I think, pretty clear. It's listen to him. Right? That's the command that God gives us. In this, that when it comes to what... And the question we would ask, two questions. The first question is, when it comes to my attention, to what I am listening to, that I'm giving my ears to? Am I listening? What things are competing with Christ for my attention? Uh, and so here's some examples. Worldly wisdom. You know, TED Talks are great, but TED Talks are not like a good place for your spiritual instruction. Worldly conflict. You know, if we could just solve these problems or get these people put down or put up or whatever. Um, worldly pleasures. Right? The comfort of um, you know, like a, like, a, like a warm fire and, and, you know, whatever, like your phones and, you know, like all this stuff. worldly success, right? The, the, more, the more money I accumulate as I get older, the, the less I want to listen to Jesus and what he says about money. And that's just the truth. Um, and then, you know, Paul, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed, that is to say transfigured, same word, transfigured by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we ask ourselves, how am I letting my, my heart be conformed to this world rather than transformed or transfigured by God's truth? And here's the analogy I thought of last night that I think really drives this home. And he says, hey, Paul is calling us discernment, like sort of like a, uh, what's the word, like sommelier, like the wine person, whatever, how you pronounce it, like, you know, and their senses are trained by, for discernment through training and practice, and, and it's sort of like, you know, uh, someone gives us 
like a $600 glass of wine. It's very fine. It's been around for a long time. I know nothing about wine. And we drink it, we sip it, and we like, it's like, you know, top notes of cherry and base notes of oak, and we spit it out. We're like, I want Pepsi, right? Like, we've, we're so trained by the things of this world. We're so, our palates are so undiscriminating. We just, we just crave sugar. We just want sugar and sweet things and, like, the fine offerings of this wine of God that he offers up in the sun. We're like, that's disgusting. Give me my Pepsi. And so it's sort of like we need to train our hearts, train our hearts, train, train, train our tongues to taste and see that the Lord is good, okay? And so we should be in the world, to be sure, but we should never be of the world. We should keep our tongues unstained from the world, that we can taste and see the goodness of God. And so, we should, and so this week, here's a challenge for all of us, including myself, which is identify one area, one voice, that is competing for your attention against Jesus Christ. And then think of a way to tune that voice out, turn it off, or if that's not possible, to turn it way down. And keep it in right proportion to the things of God. And, and so there's another way that we can mangle the, the word of God, that we can, we can mangle the right proportion of the word of God. And that's another thing that this text is pointing us to, that there's a right way and a wrong way to read scripture, okay? And so pay, this is gonna be a very, we're gonna we're about to say some stuff that, it, that you can, there's a lot of things you can miss here. So don't mishear me, okay? The, the, the wrong way to read scripture is reading it as if we think that scripture itself will show us the way and reveal God's truth and give us life. That you search the scriptures because in them you think you'll find eternal life. But the scriptures testify about me is what Jesus says. And so the right way is reading them in a way that testifies to Christ, who is himself the way, the truth, and the life. And so all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is authoritative. All scripture is useful for training in righteousness. But all scripture ultimately points to Christ. And so if we're reading scriptures in a way that makes us less like Christ, we are reading scriptures wrong. If we read scripture in a way that makes us less like Christ, we read scriptures wrongly. And so if we take the law, for example, and set it over and against Christ, and we lay up heavy legalistic burdens for ourselves or for others, and we make these heavy demands on others, we're becoming less like Christ. And more like the whitewashed tombs of the Pharisees that he strongly rebuked. Or if we take the, this is what I do, if we take the prophets and we set them over and against Christ, and we use the spirit of the prophets, the covenant prosecutors, hero Israel, you've done wrong, and we use that to condemn and draw condemnation, rain down condemnation and judgment upon others, that we become less like, particularly others within the church, we become less like Christ and more like the false teachers who are trying to, to snuff out the dimly burning wick of faith or to break the, the bruised reed of a new believer. And, and we, 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 just, we, 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 we kill the repentance and struggling believers when we do that. You know, yes, we should preach holiness. Obviously, we should preach holiness, but we should preach holiness in such a way, and we should, to one another, we should preach holiness in such a way that's always guarded uh, by grace and the offer of compassion and love of Christ. And so in short, we just ask ourselves, hey, how am I, how am I prone to, towards cold religious moralism? And how do I use religion and the truth of God as a way to exalt myself and tear other people down? How do I rain down condemnation on others so that I can feel good about myself? How do I lay up heavy burdens for others so that I can, in the areas where I'm succeeding, and then turn a blind eye in all the areas I'm not, so that I can feel good about myself? And so let's read the scriptures in such a way that conforms us to the image of Christ, not just in his actions, of obedience and duty and speaking and teaching the truth, but also in his heart uh, of faith and hope and love and compassion and mercy for one another. All right, so Peter, James, and John, they've tasted, they've been given this taste of the kingdom of God. They've seen Jesus in all his glory. They understand Jesus in right proportion to the law, that it's not Jesus and Moses and Elijah all as co-equals, but Moses and Elijah testifying about Jesus. And when, when, and when his time has arrived, they step into the background. Um, but they still need to understand his work. Christ says, do not think I've come into this world 
Does that think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets? I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. And so the question is, how does he fulfill them? And that's the last piece here. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He fulfills the law and the prophets, and he does so by dying for our sins and being raised for our justification. So the, 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 most, important, the, the, the most magnificent work of God in Christ is the, is, is, is the incarnation, perhaps. But the central work of God in Christ is not his incarnation. It's the central work is the death and resurrection. That the promise that God makes is, I will deliver my people. The problem that God has is that his people, that we, are evil. When he says, I'm going to purge the earth of all the evil, that's very bad news for us because we ourselves are evil. Um, and so the solution is that he offers up the Son of Man who can fulfill the promises of God through his death and resurrection, that he can take wicked people and transfer them into his kingdom of light and make them his sons, that he can take dead people and make them alive, that he can solve the problem of holiness so that he can then redeem his, that he can then uh, restore the creation. And so we get this, for example, starting in verse 9. He says, And they were coming down the mountain, and he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they're coming down the mountain. They've, they've tasted the kingdom, it's, but it's only a foretaste. Right? They have to come back down, and they have to finish the work that's set out for them. And he tells them, tell no one. And so he's continuing to hide his identity. And we've said this before, why he's doing this, that you don't put new wine into old wineskins. You have to kind of change their hearts and change their minds and prepare them to think about the Christ in a different way. And we know this in part from, for, for example, Mark chapter 1. And uh, it talks about how as news of Jesus spreads, he's trying to hide his identity because as news of him spreads, he can't even go into towns anymore. People are like, he's like, he's like crushed by crowds. So he has to kind of keep his identity in his, a secret. And he, so they're going to tell no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And so he's hinting here at the deeper reality that we've talked about, that he's not just David 2.0, he's not just the worldly deliverer that's going to deliver us from, from the Romans, but he's, he, he, he has a greater purpose. He's going to die for our sins and be raised for our justification. He will deliver us from the greater enemies of sin and of Satan and of death. And, and, and so look at, look at verse 10. They, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So they, they still don't get it. They're questioning it. Um, and, and just note how slow and difficult it is for the disciples to really truly understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. And I, and I think it's easy to be like, oh, those dumb old disciples. But I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for them, which is there, there's an ongoing stumbling block in the gospel, I think. Especially if, if we're prone, like myself, to worldly thinking. It's that as it becomes clearer and clearer that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, a member of the Godhead, then it becomes less and less comprehensible to us that he would ever die and be defeated by his enemies. It's like, oh, he's God, and now he's going to die. Right? And it's like, it like kind of doesn't make sense because of the way we think. And so they're trying to get around their minds around this, and so they ask a question. And the question is in verse 11. They say, they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Um, and so the, 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 context, the context for this, obviously, is Moses, uh, Elijah's an Old Testament prophet, and he's one of these, he's taken up into heaven. He doesn't actually die. He's one of only two Old Testament figures that doesn't die. But his ministry is characterized by um, speaking out against the evils of evil King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Um, in, in, and it's in First and Second Kings. And so there's this, this um, prophecy, which is in Malachi. So go to Matthew, which, and then go back one page. Go to Matthew 1 and go back one page, and we'll get Malachi chapter 4, and, uh, which reads in verses 5 and 6, Behold, this is the last, the last words of the, the, the Christian ordering of the, New Test of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So here God is promising, I'm going to send, before I return, before the day of the Lord, I am going to send Elijah. And he's going to bring repentance. And so the scribes are arguing that 
Jesus can't be the Christ because where's Elijah? Elijah hasn't come. And they're arguing in particular for a literal fulfillment of Malachi 4. Like, oh yeah, you're the Christ? Well, then where's Elijah the Tishbite? I don't see him anywhere, so you must not be the Christ. And I don't think this is a good faith argument that the scribes are making. Um, it's more in line with the other arguments the scribes have been making. They're pulling out all the stops to find reasons to deny Jesus. Like, oh, they're like, oh, you're casting out demons? Well, you must be doing that because you're the king of the demons, you know? Or like, oh, you know, give us a sign. We want to we test you. Um, prove yourself. Like, dance for us, monkey. And, um, and so the, the, the scribes are not in, engaging in a good faith investigation about who Jesus is. The scribes are making an argument that, and, 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 and they're, they're, they're testing him. And they're saying, oh, you can't possibly be the Messiah because of, you know, Elijah hasn't come first. And so notice what Jesus says to that. He, doesn't, he says in verses uh, 12 and 13, he, says, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever he pleases. What they please. So Elijah does come first to restore all things. He's not like the scribes have misread. The Old Testament doesn't say that. Like, no, he, he, he affirms that. He affirms Malachi 4, and then he points to a figurative, not a literal fulfillment. That Malachi's Elijah is someone who comes to preach repentance and to restore the hearts of Israel to their God and to prepare Israel to receive their king. And so in Matthew chapter 11, we know that Jesus identifies John the Baptist as this Elijah figure. He's not the reincarnation of Elijah. He's not Elijah popping out of heaven and coming back on the flaming chariot, but he's Elijah. He's a type or a figure or a symbol. He's an Elijah-like character. He's an Elijah figure. And then he says, and they did to him whatever they pleased. So just as Elijah was persecuted by Ahab and the wicked, the wicked ruler's of his day, so also John the Baptist was persecuted uh, by the wicked rulers in his day. And so John the Baptist comes preaching repentance and they reject him and they kill him. And they don't, they don't care about Elijah. They don't care about God's word. They don't care about God's work. What they're trying to do is to preserve their status as religious leaders and religious teachers. And this is the pattern, I think, that we see in Jesus' ministry, that the world and its power and its authorities reject the things of God. And so it will also be with the Son of Man, that they rejected Elijah, and they will also, also they will reject the Son of Man. He says, how is, it, how is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things? And this is not like a, he's not like asking, this is a rhetorical question. He's not like asking like, how is it written? He's asking like, it's, it's, because it's written this way, you know, uh, in like manner they will reject the Son of Man. And so there's, you know, one way to think about this is uh, over in Mark 12, there's a parable that Jesus gives, which is the parable of the wicked tenants. And just to summarize it for you, there's a landowner, and land, landowner is, is, represents God, and then there's a vineyard, which represents Israel, and the, the tenants are sort of the religious leaders of Israel. And um, the landowner's like, goes on a journey, and he says, hey, take care of my vineyard, and I'll send you occasionally, and we'll get some fruits from the vineyard, and you'll, you know, yield fruits. And he sends back one of his servants, and they beat him up, and they mistreat him, and he sends back another servant, and they kill him. And he sends more servants, and they beat them or kill them alternately. Like, they're not interested in hearing these servants. And so finally, he says, I'll, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And he sends his son, and they're like, you know what we'll do? We'll kill his son, and then we'll become, we'll become the tenants. Um, and, and, and then it says in, in the, 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 the stone that the builders rejected, the, the, the son that he sent, they'll become the cornerstone. It'll become, they're like, this stone is no good. This stone is worthless. But God's like, no, actually, this stone is the stone from which the entire foundation will be aligned. And all the other stones in the house will be built in light of this stone. It's the most important stone. Um, it, and, 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 and yet through the hand, so, so it's, sort of like, it's sort of like this. Like these, the scribes are the, the wicked and the rebellious tenants. And God will send his, his servants, his prophets, to the leaders of Israel, and they'll reject him. And they'll reject all of them. And he'll send his, his son, and they'll kill him. And, you know, it's, but what's interesting about this is the strange mercies of God in all of this, that through the hands of this rebellious, these rebellious 
wicked tenants, God accomplishes his great purposes in the gospel. But Acts chapter 2 tells us that um, God and his good purposes and his good plan delivers the Christ into the hands of sinful men and they crucify him and kill him so that everyone who believes in him would receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says this to the Israelites, like, yeah, you did this and you will receive forgiveness for it. Through him, the wicked tenants aren't just saved from death, they're not just spared, but the wicked tenants themselves are adopted as sons. And so God's purposes in Christ are to fulfill the law and the prophets, not just by fulfilling their predictions, like, oh, Moses said this would happen, and Elijah said that would happen, and Isaiah said this would happen, but by actually accomplishing the purposes of the law and the prophets. That Christ is the end of the law. He is the goal of the law for all who believe. That the law and the, the law sets the standard of righteousness, and the prophets condemn us for failing to meet that standard. And Christ pours out his soul in death and was numbered with the transgressors and bore the sins of many, so that the many who trusted in him would be accounted righteous on his account. And so as we think about the application of this text, it's not ultimately, hey, strive for greater holiness, strive for more obedience. You know, it's, it's instead submit yourselves, submit ourselves more completely to the grace of God. Um, that one of the things that keeps us off that mountaintop of experiencing God's glory is our own self-righteous striving. Um, we're so busy trying to justify ourselves that we begin to forget that we're sinners. And we're so focused on the speck in other people's eyes you know, that we forget the, the, the log in our own eye, and we never let us see his glory most perfectly manifested in his grace. Um, and so we need to let our hearts be broken and contrite because of our sins. Like, we need to, like, like, we, like, like, let the impact that sin has in your life, like, let, let sin have its, like, like, let the fact that you have committed sin, like, break your heart. Don't just gloss it over with the promise of the gospel. You know, like, yes, we want to soothe our hearts with the gospel, but we also want to let sin, we want to let God and the Holy Spirit do the work of repentance in our heart. Um, and so we need to acknowledge our sins before God. We don't, we don't not just, to, not to earn our forgiveness, and not just to check a box, but it's the right expression of our own repentance, of, you know, uh, you know, give me a broken and a contrite heart, O oh Lord. And, we need to, and then once we've done that, we need to let our Savior in, our Savior who died for our sins and was raised for our justification, and let him console our broken heart and restore it to the joy of his salvation. And we're doing these things knowing that we are not saved by our own efforts or by our own holiness or by our own repentance, but we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we trust in the king and the king saves us. And, and so the invitation of this text is knowing the purpose of what Jesus is going to do in Jerusalem is to submit ourselves to the grace of this king. And, and so whatever the burden is that we're carrying, the burden of sin, uh, that we would lay it down at his feet and we would stop trying to prove ourselves through our own, own self-righteousness and we would rest in him and trust in him as our gracious redeemer. And, and, and so Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. He fulfills the law and the prophets by dying for our sins. He fulfills the law and the prophets by dying for our sins, being raised for our justification. He's God incarnate, the mediator of God's glory and, he's, and God's grace. He's the goal or the purpose of the law. He's the thing to which the law and the prophets point. He's the great sacrifice and substitute. He lays down his life for us. In him, we die to sin, and in him, we live to God. And so Christ's humiliation sort of begins on Advent, but it doesn't end on Advent. It continues through to Good Friday. It continues through to Holy Saturday. Um, and Psalm 93 sort of gives us a taste of just how far our Lord has descended or condescended and how he Lo, he made himself to save us. The Lord, who reigned as king, emptied himself to become our servant. Or the Lord, who is robed in majesty, is robed with flesh and mortality. Or the Lord, whose throne is established from his old, was crucified like a criminal. Or the Lord, who from everlasting to everlasting, was murdered 
in an afternoon. That the son was murdered by the tenants. And on Easter morning, we sort of get a new story. The record kind of scratches, right? And, and a new song starts playing. And um, we, we be, it's a song of triumph and exaltation. We have the, the, the risen Lord in all of his glory um, before us. And all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. And lo, he is with us always, even to the end of the age. And so we can be transformed into his image by beholding his glory with an unveiled face. And that God has sort of ripped the veil off of our eyes to see the glory of Christ in its fullness. And we see him like, behold, your king, like, like shining with glory and white hot like the sun. And we, we, we can let the light of Christ shine into our hearts. And knowing that whoever sees him also sees the Father. And so, and, 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 and we can look forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, as, as scripture says, for, for you know, basically like, now we see things in a mirror dimly. And we know in part. And that someday we will know fully. And we will see fully. And know that we've been fully known. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. That we will become partakers of that divine glory that Christ himself is showing us on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we will be transformed like Christ in the, in the blink of an eye. In the, in the, in the, the, the mighty work of God of salvation will be complete. And, and so in short, the, the Son of God became man so that we might become sons of God. And so let's just take a moment to thank God for these things. Um, Lord, we thank you for your plan of salvation. Um, we thank you for the heralds you sent beforehand to prepare the way. We thank you for the incarnation of your son. We thank you for his love towards us and towards sinners and those in need of grace, that his, his suffering and his death on our behalf, his resurrection and power and glory and his ascension into heaven. And we thank you for his apostles who declare what he's done. Um, we thank you, Lord, for your grace towards us who are in Christ, our great high priest. And we hope that you would soften our hearts uh, through an experience of your glory today. We hope that you would help us to strive for the holiness that will allow us to experience your glory more completely. Uh, and in all these things, that you would guard us from self-righteousness and from dull religious formalism. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Uh, so as we, as we prepare um, ourselves for the, for the communion meal, let's just take a time to sort of reflect upon the truths in Mark 9 and reflect upon, um, let the Spirit work in our hearts of whatever he's trying to tell us through his word um, and whatever, you know, maybe, maybe there's, a, there's an idol that he's trying to expose or, um, you know, an area where you're trying to encourage us to, to, to fight more fully for joy in, and to experience the glory of God. Um, or, or maybe there's an area of, of self-righteousness and, and religious formalism that we need to repent of. And um, just sort of let the Spirit do His work and, and convict us um, in this time. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.